Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing episode of Market Impact Insights. You know, if you went out and you talked to marketing leaders and you asked them what is one of the most challenging but one of the most crucial aspects of what they and their teams do, they would talk about content strategy, content strategy, content development, content execution. And I know that from personal experience and a couple of decades in, in marketing and just the criticality, but if you go out and you look at just the research. What are people saying about content marketing? And it's very clear on its importance. I was looking at some recent studies. 82% of marketers are actively investing in content marketing. Only about 10% or so report not using it at all. But what's interesting is that 51% of the businesses that are investing in content marketing, they're doing it really frequently. They're publishing content every day. So we're getting a high volume of content. And when you talk to respondents in surveys about just this huge explosion, this volume of available content, about a third of them say that they are overwhelmed by that amount that is available. But nearly half say that they're consuming three to five pieces of content before engaging with a vendor. So the content, if it's relevant, is going to get utilized. It can have an impact, but there's this huge volume. And what does that mean for marketing leaders? What does it mean for the skill sets and the teams that they're developing? Uh, That uh, in another study, top three roles that marketing leaders are prioritizing, content creators, content marketing managers, content strategists. So content is critical. I'm excited to talk about this uh, with my guest today. And we're really fortunate to have Skylar Reeves joining us today. Skylar knows all about the uh, area of content marketing. He founded Art and Growth a few years ago. And what his focus is all about is content intelligence. That is determining exactly which content should be created for websites how to group it together using topic clustering, and then how do you prioritize it based off of financial modeling? And Skylar is helping companies save money by bringing content marketing and outreach in-house and also helping them find, hire, and train marketers on how to effectively develop strategy and manage processes. Now, Skylar knows all about pressure. He was a combat medic in the Iraq War. He was CMO at Rundoyan, where he took conversion rates from 2.2% on their lead form to 18.5% in the first 30 days, doubled their revenue in the first quarter. So growth, uh, trial under fire, nose pressure, nose content, and content intelligence. And I can't wait for our conversation today. Skylar, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Thanks for having me on, Dan. That was a... uh... That was a wonderful and flattering introduction. Well, I I really want to start out, Skylar, going back on this track you've been on. You're an entrepreneur. You founded your company just a few years ago. And I'm curious, 
what fueled your passion to go that route, to build your own business versus taking a more traditional, a longer corporate path? You know, I look back on it now, Dan, and I think, you know, there's sometimes I, I wish maybe I would have taken a longer corporate path, but I think that anyone who does go into entrepreneurship knows, um, you know, maybe they, they toy with that idea now and then, but when you're an entrepreneur, you can't do that. You have to be able to work on your own things and solve your own problems, um, you know, that perhaps the the organization that you're working for, uh, you know, won't provide you the resources for, or, you know, they're just not interested in. I was, I was working in the transportation industry, primarily on um, solving algorithm problems related to routing and things like that. Um, the background in computer science after I got out of the military, uh, went to computer science and philosophy, got into the math side of things of computer science, and then started learning about, uh, you know, this, this Google algorithm, right? This SEO algorithm that uh, was a black box and that, that really interested me. And I found this nice intersection between you know, the computer science side of things and the, the people side of things and the writing side of things and understanding, um, you know, concepts and ideas and how people think with my background in philosophy as well. And so it seemed, you know, I just fell in love with it almost from the get go, um, which played real well into marketing. And that's how we ended up where we are now. So. Wow. Well, I, I've talked to a lot of company founders and one of the fascinating things when you're, you're really starting from scratch and you're building your own company, the challenge of building a healthy and a sustainable culture is something that they always say is one of the hardest things to do. What have you learned along the way? I learned a lot. I'm still learning too. You know, the the only culture really that we we didn't have a lot of culture at the previous company I was working for before I founded this. And prior to that, it was the military, right? And that's a drastically different culture that you know, I think there are some elements of it that you can take into, um, you know, the civilian world, but there's a lot of it you need to leave out to just the way that we deal with problems and delegate and, um, you know, pretty much manage in general. Um, but over the, over, the, over the years so far, what I've learned is, you know, as the as the executive, unless, you know, unless you have a co-founder or something like that, and, and you really have a, you know, founder, co-founder fit, you have to define uh, the vision and the culture, and you can't really let other people, uh, you know, guilt you into into doing that. And you have to be capable of having um, difficult conversations so that you can help people grow. But you know, originally we we'd bought another company, was going through a merger, and um, or acquired another company, and we were redefining our culture there to some extent. And uh, and you know, doing this for the first time, I was I was trying to acquiesce, right, because I wanted you know, these mm -hmm. people to integrate yeah. well and everything to work well. And I learned real fast, you know, that, that, that doesn't work. You know, you can't, uh, you can't compromise on your vision and your values and, uh, because otherwise you're just giving it lip service. When you're giving it lip service as a CEO, that's, it's, I think it becomes readily apparent. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't create the impact that you're wanting. And, you know, you've got to, you got to keep that in mind and, and follow your own direction. Yeah. I think authenticity is what comes to mind, yeah. right? In terms of actions behind the words. Exactly. Yeah. Because otherwise it's incongruent, right? And I think anytime you have incongruency in what you're doing and what you believe, it's, it's, it's stressful. It causes stress throughout the organization and you know, it, it impacts everything. It's a ripple effect. Yeah. And have you found as you've been building, obviously, as you're growing and you're helping more and more companies figure it out, I'm sure that you've had to take a close look at what's the optimal skill set that works for you, right? And you mentioned 
kind of that intersection of people skills, people understanding the human factor with having a good quantitative base, right? Understanding the, the t- technology around digital, you mentioned the computer sciences. So has, has that been something you've kind of had to very intentionally think about as you could build out the skill set within your own organization? Yeah, definitely. You know, we started the first, you know, the first couple of years we were, because we were so steeped in data and so heavily data driven and data focused that I think somewhere along the way, I forgot that qualitative data is still data as well. And then not only on top of that is that things really only work when you have, you know, it all comes down to people and, you know, people had told me that and I heard it, right. But I didn't really internalize it and process and really understand it. And I'm, I'm learning that more and more over time and, and realizing what having good people in place that's, you know, align with what you're trying to do. And, you know, everyone um, is, you know, that, you know, everyone that they just click right with the, with the entire, uh, with the rest of the teams, it, it does the job. It solves so many problems that, you know, we had tried to solve a software and so I'm definitely learning that and, uh, you know, trying to get better at it because I mean, coming from the, uh, coming from the background that I came from and, you know, environmental factors, the way I was raised and everything else, you know, it's, it's really kind of rethinking, um, how to understand people and what it means to be a leader versus a, just, you know, a manager or a CEO or something like that. Right. Well, you're all about content intelligence. And as we said earlier, a huge priority for marketers and very challenging for marketers. So from your perspective, because you're doing this every day, Skylar, what are the drivers behind an effective content strategy? What makes developing a compelling strategy so difficult and executing at a high level so hard? And are there some real world examples that you can share on, on how to overcome some of these challenges? Yeah, I think the one of the biggest problems I'm, I'm seeing more and more outside of, the, you know, there's underlying themes across all of them. The, the biggest one is frankly that people will talk about a strategy, but never document it and really commit to it and, and kind of carry it forward. And if you don't have leadership buy-in at the C-suite, um, it's really hard to, um, you know, push the measures, message throughout the entire organization, especially when you rely on other people in the organization to help you produce that content. If you're a product-led company, right, and you're needing, um, you know, uh, the marketing team is needing help from the engineering team, right? Like if the if the C-suite isn't all aligned there, then that causes problems, that causes friction, um, you know, because maybe they don't understand why it's important. But beyond that, it's it's just a lack of talking to customers and really understanding um, you know, even if you have product market fit, it's, it's not really diving in deep to understand what their real problems are and how they think about them and how they articulate them. Because like you mentioned in the beginning with this cacophony of content all around us, right? Like the, one of the problems we have to do with is how do we focus? How do we know what to read? Um, how do we know, um, or what to consume, right? Where do we know to spend our time? And when you can, when you talk to your customers and really drill in, you know, just beyond surface level of, you know, when you ask them, you know, what problem were you facing before you, you know, before you, um, you know, found our solution or what were you doing prior? When they answer that, you don't just stop there. You start digging into, okay, and why was that important to you? Right. And then, and from there, you begin to ask more open-ended questions and really extract useful insights and stories that you can take and help not only drive your strategy to really understand how to segment out your audience even further so that you can personalize content more uh, for each one, but also how to tell 
stories within your content and use examples within your content that are going to resonate with your readers in a way that, you know, perhaps more surface level content just won't. Right. So those are two big things that I'm seeing is, you know, lack of alignment at the, at the top level, and then um, a lack of customer insights, everything else after that comes down to execution. There's a lot of technical things that go into that, but you know, you can get all the, all the technical keyword research and clustering, you can get all that right in the world. But if you, but if you don't have alignment and you don't really understand your customers and know how to personalize it, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. So let's dive in a little bit on around that alignment, getting that C-suite buy-in. Have you seen some specific approaches that seem to work better, especially to an audience, right? Of senior executives, maybe they're not as knowledgeable, right? About uh, the ins and outs of content marketing, but what, uh, advice would you have around getting that buy-in? So, I mean, getting the buy-in, I think it's, um, you, you know, you can use examples. That's one way to do it, right? Like, you know, point and have them look at companies like, um, you know, Drift, right? Or if you're not in that market, maybe you're something that's more, um, you know, templatized, like look at what Airtable's managed to accomplish, you know, with with their template library, or their template universe, look at what Canva's been able to accomplish, um, you know, I would say like use those as examples. If you, you know, if you don't have any hard data, if you've got any hard data from where some of your content has resonated, do you want to take where your customers, I think uh, taking insights from your customers where they've mentioned that they, yeah. you know, read your content and they really liked it, or, you know, they, um, you know, heard somebody speaking on a podcast or, you know, watched one of your YouTube videos or, you know, something like that. If you take those, even though in the aggregate, it may not seem like a lot, that qualitative data I found when it's coming directly from the customers and it's kind of one step removed from, you know, say the, the director or, a, a you know, head of content that really resonates a lot with the C-suite because mm-hmm. they, they do care what customers say. Right. And so that qualitative data and feedback can go a long way beyond that though. If you're, I mean, uh, I think the, the ideal thing is to say, you know, if you're looking for a place uh, to work is to find a place that already is bought in on content and where the, you know, where the CEO is already, um, you know, holding that flag and, and making that stance, it's going to make it a lot easier, I think, for the progression of your overall career. Um, so, I mean, you can try to get buy-in, right? But if you continually uh, find frustration, then, you know, you might want to think like, what could I accomplish if I was in an organization that would allow me to execute and get the results that they, um, you know, that they, that's possible for them to get. And then if you're at the CEO level, I would say, you know, look at the companies around you and think about, you know, look at the channels and the way that you're currently marketing, the way that you're currently acquiring customers and split things up and look at, you know, how does the good content that you produce, maybe the ones that you put more effort into, while you may not be able to directly tie it to, um, you know, an MQL um, immediately, right? Like look at it and say, Mm -hmm. once you are marketing source, that we aren't doing outbound or legion for how does that affect sales cycle? How does that affect, you know, close rate, um, you know, and then take all the other costs into it as well. I mean, you can do that from the head of content level too. If you can crunch those numbers, you can make a, a data case, but I would rely more on, on the customer qualitative data. It just seems to resonate and hit more when it's at the, at the emotional level. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we're thinking about content strategy, content marketing, is this a one size fits all type of approach or does size of, your company, geographic scope, are you domestic? Are you going global? Does that matter? Or you're a smaller startup or if you're a larger established brand, you know, how do you need to think about it differently? Or do you need to think about it differently depending on what your profile is? I think the core principles remain the same, 
right? In terms of, you know, the, the, the those are just the fundamentals of marketing, right? The, you know, the customer understanding and all that. But in terms of the actual, you know, let's say we want to get more strategic in how we're actually going to do it. Like, you know, what channels, who are we writing for on what channels? When are we doing it? How often are we doing it? How are we going to measure it? Yes, that that 100%, it's going to vary depending on what type of organization you are. You know, if you're a, um, you know, if you're a B2B SaaS product-led company, you know, SEO is a great channel depending on what your ACV is, you know, and in, in, in your cost to acquire customer because that's going to be a lot uh, more sustainable for you in the long run than, say, um, pure paid acquisition. I'm not saying don't do paid acquisition, right? But um, but SEO is how you can kind of sustain that mode over time versus, you know, a company that has a much higher um, ACV that's mid-market enterprise, something like that, uh, with much longer sales cycles in between. You got to think about where where do your customers get their information, right? How do they consume information? How do they make decisions to buy? And really kind of ask yourself, do they do a lot of searching online? If they do, what are they searching for? They may not be searching for the category, right? And so you got to figure out how to, how to actually reach those people. And I think there are far better channels for that. That's not to say to, you know, um, test them out and maybe, you know, there's a difference between capturing demand and generating demand. And I think you can connect them together and create a demand loop. But yeah, it's going to vary, you know, whether you're a marketplace, whether you're B2B, whether you're B2C, whether you're global, international, there's a lot of different things to take into account. But I would say when you're an international, it's taking everything that would work at the domestic level and then applying it into, you know, um, individual segments where you, you still have to personalize that and make it, uh, you know, unique for each market. But yeah, 100%. You, you can't take a one-size-fits-all approach, and that's what I think is frustrating a lot of time whenever you go to read guidance on developing content strategy and how to execute content operations is that they're often coming from um, a particular bias and it's something I have to be aware of too. You know, when I sit there and talk about it is, is to ask myself, like, are there any inherent biases in the way that I approach things because of the lens that I see through, you know, that I need to consider and call out. But when, you know, when you read an article or you watch a YouTube video or you read some LinkedIn content, um, they're almost always kind of telling it from the perspective of how it works for their ICP, which is very easy. If you, you know, let's say you're B2B, if someone's working more B2C, it's very easy to see that and think it's going to work for you when it could be completely different or the inverse as well. Yeah. You said something really powerful, which is getting a deep understanding of who your target audience is, right? I mean, just, it all starts there, isn't it? Just really being able to understand yeah. who you're trying to reach. Yeah. And sounds simple, but I know, right. I know in organizations I've worked in, not always so simple. But, but I wonder, we have to ask ourselves why, why do we think that? Why is that the case, right? Like, it's not difficult to just go talk to customers. I think we try to overcomplicate it. And I'm not saying like we have to have a structured set of interview questions. It, you just need to have real conversations with people. And I think marketers are the are you know are best suited to do that because it's inherently non-transactional typically, unless that marketer has been forced into a role that is more like sales. You know, if the marketer's role is. Yeah direct response, they're, they're effectively a salesperson, right? But you take a marketer who's, who's removed from, you know, they're not incentivized, um, you know, to do anything there. They're not commission-based, something like that. They can really have just a, a real, you know, honest conversation with, uh, with customers or, you know, potential customers who may be a customer of the future or decided to go with somebody else. You just have the conversation. I mean, the qualitative data that you collect from that Again, I think people overcomplicate it in thinking that they have to have this structure. 
always, right? And I would tell people, just do it. That's better than not doing it at all, right? And instead of kind of ending up in analysis paralysis. And at the end of the day, the, all the data you collect from just from having the conversation is still useful. I mean, we're walking, talking, qualitative data, mach- you know, collecting machines as humans. It's we've been doing it our whole lives. That's how we figured out not to touch a stove, right? You don't, you don't have to, we didn't have to log that in a spreadsheet somewhere to learn that. And the same thing applies to customer research. Yeah, I always felt that there is an over angst, if you will, right, or, or over worry that if we reach out to customers, they're going to be reluctant to want to really share. And so we over project that, you know, in experience when you actually go out and if you position it the right way, actually, I found that they're very motivated. They appreciate yeah. the respect of, of wanting to hear what they have to say. Right. So we're, we're, we could be our own worst enemies by kind of restricting that when we should be more open about you know, approaching think, them on that. I think if you know that you're delivering value and that if your intention is to try to improve that value. Like why wouldn't somebody want to talk to you? I've, I've yet to have a company that, um, that we use as a vendor that reach out to me to get, you know, hop on a zoom call, um, that I wouldn't talk to. I will say this though. There's been plenty that I've, you know, ignored filling out a survey, Yeah. but if they want to hop on a 15 minute zoom call with me and just chat and, and get my feedback on how I think the product could be better for me and my use case or, or, um, you know, why I, didn't opt for them then and decided to go with somebody else and, and why I might be evaluating them in the future. I'm happy to tell them all the time. Um, but that's, that's a lot different than just filling out a survey. And again, when you, when you take the survey route, you miss out on the nuances that happen when you're actually having like real conversation and, and the depth that you can get from, you know, they say, they say something, they say why they didn't, uh, you know, uh, one of their problems, right? And you can't pull on that thread when it's in a survey like you can in an actual conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's just the interpersonal interaction just adds something special there beyond just another online survey. So really think exactly. about diversifying how you go out and do that. And the other thing that we're hearing all the time is data-driven decision-making, right? And that that's valuable. We need to be pushing towards that. But I've also heard you talk about this chase for perfect data. What's that all about? Yeah. So we, th- this was the, you know, the trap that I think I fell into in the beginning is, um, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's helped us produce and move the, move things forward a lot with our own product. But I used to be obsessed with, um, you know, let's get the best data that we possibly can before we make a decision. And over time realized that, you know, the way this world works, no data is, is perfect, especially, you know, when we're, with the online world and the digital world, we we think that, um, you know, because of attribution or because of the way we can track things, that it's it's so much more insightful. But but I think oftentimes it actually just causes us to make the wrong decisions based on data that is incomplete that we that maybe we just assume is complete or we assume is better than qualitative data. And you know, when you look at it and you imagine what data am I not capturing? Right? If you go ask your customers right now, if you put a, a, a field on your form to ask them how they hear how they um, heard about you whenever they're going to contact you or something like that, you're going to find that all your attribution data is, is predominantly wrong. We just did this, a test on, on one of our own clients. Um, um, you know, shout out to refine labs here, Chris Walker, you know, I remember the first time he, he said something about it. I was like, that's really interesting. We're going to go do that to our clients. And, uh, you know, we're talking one out of, uh, less than like 1% of the responses actually matched up with what the attribution software um, says. So once you realize that you realize, okay, you know, having perfect data is impossible. 
um, but we can have directionally accurate data, and that's that's better than being led into inaction. Like I said earlier, analysis paralysis where you can't make a decision or relying too heavily on the data um, without, you know, because most, most people are collecting data are not true data scientists. They're not true statisticians, right? Like they don't know how to, you know, ensure that they don't, that they're not introducing bias into their own data or the way that they're, you know, interpreting it. But there's a lot of problems out there that you just can't collect data for, whether it's because of GDPR, whether it's because of, iOS, whether it's because it's happening in channels that are completely untrackable. And so what you have to do instead is you have to think about, okay, directionally, where should I go? If there's an unsolvable problem, like, you know, not to go too deep in here, but you can apply principles like Fermi decomposition to it to get roughly in the right direction. At the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. We use data to help um, inform us, right? But you need to combine that with your own experience to make an informed decision. So, the, you know, when you think about what an executive does, right? I mean, the, they may rely on data to help them understand that's, um, you know, a particular uh, question, but ultimately you take that same data and you give it to someone else who is inexperienced, right? Someone who's, you know, take Tim Cook at Apple, for example, right? I mean, the, as a CEO, you get, you get paid more, not because, you know, um, not because you're necessarily the the absolute best and you do all the most work, it's because you have the experience to make the right decisions, like statistically, um, you know, more accurate and correct uh, more than you do incorrectly. And if you don't, then I guess the, you know, the, the board deals with that. But, you know, what you do is you take that data, but then you take your experience to actually make a decision what to do from it. But no, ultimately, I think if you rely too heavily on data, um, uh, on just pure like quantitative data, it's just too easy to go in the wrong direction or feel like you can't solve a problem because you can't get access to data when there are other ways to critically think about and solve these problems. Yeah. And I think it also comes back and it impacts what we were talking about earlier about culture and how employees and organization feel about where they are. And I, I know nothing more frustrating than being caught. You know, you talked about analysis paralysis, but you know, if you're in a situation where there's a lot of hard work going on and the requests keep coming in. Can you go back and look at that again? Can you get me more information? And if you never get to a decision point and it just drags out, I know that can be incredibly right. frustrating for teams, right? It starts affecting morale and just the energy that they're bringing into the work. Right. And, you know, and you've got people who, you know, when, when that's happening, right? I mean, you get to the point where you never really know what's going to make, um, you know, your leadership happy. Right, because it's a moving target a lot of times, and and some of the data is just not there, and and you know you just need to have that conversation with them and tell them, you know, like like look at this, like sometimes you just have to move, right, because it's, yeah. it's better than just standing still. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you've obviously worked with a lot of smart people in and around strategy and and content marketing, and worked with a lot of great clients in helping them achieve more. When you think about everything you've done so far, Skylar, what's the best piece of advice you've received in your career around strategic marketing and content strategy? That's a good question. There's so many. I think right now, the one that's, you know, I think these things kind of shift over time, right? Based on what's, what's, uh, what's present. And right now it's probably you know, to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And 
being willing to, um, whether that's, you know, having difficult conversations with people, um, or whether that's being able to make decisions, right? Like I said, without data or whether that's, you know, being willing to take, uh, take some risks. Um, it's just to be comfortable, um, being uncomfortable. So I guess it depends too on, you know, what makes you uncomfortable. That, that's probably one of the biggest one that, that stands out to me, um, currently. So, well, we're in high change times right now, right? And I know a lot yeah. of people are going in and out of their comfort zone, getting uncomfortable. And so all of this change going on, but when you look ahead to the future, Skylar, what makes you optimistic? So this is probably contrary to what I think a lot of other people kind of feel. I mean, there's plenty of people feel this way, but I would say I, I'm actually pretty optimistic about the direction that privacy is heading when it comes to online marketing. And I know a lot of marketers and advertisers aren't optimistic about that, but I am because I think that, um, you know, as, as my narrative has kind of gone this far that I think that we've over time become too reliant upon data. Um, and, and that's, that's led us to, um, really create bad behaviors, um, to achieve certain outcomes that I don't think is optimal for our buyers, but are rather optimal for ourselves perhaps. And so as privacy continues to, you know, trend in the direction, like, cause we're not going back, right? Like there's, there's no going right. back to, to right. the way things were before. I think that that's going to free up things a lot for marketers to actually get back to the, the core fundamentals of marketing, of understanding people, of being creative, of taking risks, of trying things to, to really be different and not just, you know, execute a lead gen SDR cadence campaign, you know, uh, you know, all day. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty optimistic about that. I mean, if you look at Nike, right, I mean, Nike didn't get that big off of Legion forms. So I think it would be exciting to kind of return to that world again. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. And more and more time is being spent thinking actively about privacy issues, right? Are you seeing that within your clients where just the reality is they have to be more thoughtful around how they approach it? Oh, yeah, 100%. Whether it's through the way that data is collected or what they do with that data. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a constant uh, consideration, especially with some of the things going on in, um, you know, in Europe right now, I think, you know, with, with Google analytics and, um, some recent rulings that came, uh, came down, uh, there regarding GDPR and, you know, people are, you need to be prepared for that too. Right. Like, so I'm not saying, you know, don't collect any data, right. But have a backup in place on what you're going to do. If, you know, if, if these things uh, have a ripple effect out farther than that, you know, have other alternative solutions that, are privacy focused that way you have historical data and you don't just lose it one day. But uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely something I've been uh, counseling people on lately is to, to have a, a backup plan that is, that is, you know, more future proof um, than current solutions. Now that makes a lot of sense. So as we start wrapping up the conversation, Skylar, do you have any other final advice for business leaders that are seeking sustainable growth or they're constantly trying to develop even higher performing teams? Yeah, I would say that, you know, I, again, this is a bias, right, from from the marketing side of things. I think marketing is a, um, can be a primary driver to actually drive growth in the business if it's executed correctly. And so the piece of advice I would give there is let marketing do marketing, not sales. And, you know, not saying not to have alignment between them, but uh, but let marketing execute the way that they should, which means that they're um, 
focusing on what's best for the buyer, that they're really understanding the buyer, allowing the buyer to come to you the way that the buyer wants to buy. Um, and, uh, and maybe if you haven't read it, go read Brent, um, Brent Adamson's recent, uh, article in, in, um, Harvard business review about, about the, the shifts in buyer behavior. I think, uh, that might be enlightening for people who don't know who I am. Maybe that'll uh, convince you a bit. So go check that article out. Yeah. It always seems to come back to customer focus, right? Buyer focus. Yeah. That's how can a- you go wrong if you, if you take that approach, right? Like what, if you, if you always ask yourself, like, what is best for the customer? Am I doing this for the customer? What would they want? How would this help them? Right? Like how would they want to experience this? As long as you focus and, 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 and answer and think about things from their perspective, I don't really think you can, um, I mean, I guess you can still make mistakes, right? You can make wrong decisions, but I think, uh, in the aggregate, uh, I think you end up, uh, you know, succeeding far more often than not uh, in the long run, you know, if you're talking about sustainability. So. Yeah. I, I've always thought that the more intensely customer focused you are, that corresponded to really being committed to being a learning organization because your customers are going to be the best teachers. And if you're committed to constantly getting that feedback, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to apply that learning. Yeah. It's a way to, it's a way to stay ahead too. Right. I mean, look at all the companies that aren't doing it. So I'm, you can build a moat to some extent, maybe not a, maybe not a huge one necessarily depends on what you're doing, but it's a way to stay ahead because you're going to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on versus what you're waiting to hear from, you know, from Gartner or Harvard business review. Right. I mean, the customers will know before you get, you figure that out, you adapt and change and be agile. And and now you're, you know, far ahead of everyone else by the time they realize it and catch up. Absolutely. Well, Skylar, thanks again for coming on, sharing your experiences as a founder of Arden Growth and as someone who is deeply committed to intelligent content strategy and content marketing. Thanks for having me on, Dan. And a reminder to all of you, please continue to provide the gift of feedback in terms of what you like about this podcast, how we can continually improve. You can go out and rate and review. Do that on all the popular podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. And a reminder, as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.